Marvin Haymeyer, 52-year-old muffler man, has issues with locals and authorities over fines and property. Eventually, he's had enough and builds the ultimate destruction machine and unleashes it on the neighbourhood. This is the story of the Killdozer. Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, tonight I have a bizarre story about a guy that just couldn't take it anymore and unleashed his frustration over fines, a zoning dispute and shitty neighbours onto the neighbourhood. Now tonight's episode will be a little different to my normal style. There will be large sections of audio from Marvin Hemeyer himself. This audio was recorded on April the 13th, 2004 and can be considered his manifesto about what would lead him to do what he ultimately would do. Get even on the town of Granby. So, who's Marvin Hemeyer? Born October 28, 1951, at South Dakota, he was not such a great academic, but he wasn't stupid. Marvin would say that when he was young, he broke his arm. And since that time, his academic results never really found the potential they could have. Marvin ended up with a couple of muffler businesses in Boulder, Colorado, and if he wasn't running them himself, he would lease them out to others to run. Marvin went up to Grand Lake for a six-month holiday and ended up liking it and thought he might buy some property as it was a great area and the prices were cheap. He found three lots with a couple of cabins at Grand Lake. They had a great view, and they were going at a great price, so he bought them with the intention of doing them up over the next year or two. Marvin had a friend called John Kleiner, who owned Dr John's Auto Care in Boulder. They would do a bit of snowmobiling together and John told Marvin he was looking to find a place up this way to open a new auto shop. John already owned a cabin up in Grand Lake so Marvin told him he would have a look and see if he could find anything. Marvin found a small place near Grand Lake but then came across an old concrete plant in Granby about 20-odd minutes from Grand Lake. The original owner had gone bankrupt. It had a big 3,000-square-foot building with three bay doors on two acres or one hectare, and so Marvin asked a real estate agent about having a look and asked about the price. The agent told him he could have it for about $110,000. 
Now Marvin sort of laughed at the price as property up in Granby was so cheap at the time as the economy was quite depressed. Marvin told the agent he would wait till the FDIC auction that was coming up in the next month or so. Marvin also asked not only this real estate agent but another agent if the previous owner was interested in bidding for the property as he didn't want to step on anyone's toes being an out-of-towner. Both agents said they had no idea if the, the original owner was going to bid so Marvin decided he would bid for it at the upcoming auction. Now, the FDIC is, according to Wiki, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Now, it says it's a United States government corporation providing deposit insurance to depositors in U.S. commercial banks and savings institutions. In this instance, the FDIC was auctioning off approximately 160 properties after several savings and loan banks went under. Now these 160 properties, a lot of them ended up on the auction list because when the relevant savings and loans bank went under, the people who owned or at least had a mortgage on the property had nowhere to pay their mortgages and instead of saving the money, they spent it. By the time the FDIC got its act together and demanded the back payments, most people ended up having foreclosure proceedings against them and they lost their property. So Marvin and John decided that the property was worth about $66,000 and if it went over at the auction, then so be it. Marvin would purchase the property and either sell it or finance it to John. So auction day came and Marvin saw the real estate guy talking to a group of about five guys at the front of the auction house. Eventually the lot Marvin was looking at buying for John came up for bid. Now Marvin found out that the lot had an EPA audit hanging over it and it could cost maybe $20,000 to clean up. But the FDIC had done most of the work needed So this really wasn't an issue. So the first bid was by one of the guys up the front and it was for $35,000. Marvin started waving his hand and put in a bid for $40,000. He then saw this guy jump up on his chair to look around to see who was bidding against him. The guy then put in a bid for $45,000. Marvin then counted it with 50000 as he had a limit of 66000 and then the other guy didn't put in a further bid. So Marvin got the property for $50,000. Well, this is the point where the events of the next 13 or so years starts. Now the guy who was bidding against Marvin was the previous owner, Cody Dochev. And I'll let Marvin tell you about their first meeting just after he won the bid for the property at the auction. This guy, uh, come to find out his name was Cody Dochev, he came back there and introduced himself to me about about the rudest, most arrogant person. I mean, this guy's just a fucking asshole. 
come back and just introduced himself kind of by just giving me a tongue lashing for about 10 minutes about, you know, who I thought I was and what I was going to do with the property. And I explained to him I was buying it for John Kleiner. And uh, he said he wanted the property. And I said, well, I'll tell you, I'll sell you the property. I said, we were going to pay $66,000. And, uh, you know, I was I told him I was selling it to John Kleiner, who was going to start an automotive store there. And he didn't want to have anything to do with it. He said, bullshit. He says I only got Gus Harris was his buddy there sitting beside him, I guess. Gus was sponsoring the whole financing on this thing, and Gus wasn't going to pay more than fifty grand for it. And uh, I says, "Well, I'm sorry, but I says, you know, I can't just not come down here and spend my money and waste my time and not, you know, get make some money on it." So I offered it to him that day for what I was going to sell it to John for, because I could tell the guy was pissed off, and I wasn't there to piss off any people. I mean, this is the only guy. Of all the properties that sold before his, that was doing any screaming at anybody during the auction. I mean, 160 people, or 160 properties were sold that day, and this is the only fool that didn't come down there with enough money to buy his property. I mean, this shows you how day late and a dollar short this fool is. You know, he thinks he's going to go down there. I mean, he screwed the whole town of Granby over the years uh, by going bankrupt. And, uh, you know, I guess this guy's pretty dramatic. He, uh, he tried to, he faked a suicide jumping off a windmill or some hot tall building out there by his place by Hot Sulphur Springs. Anyway, you know, he's just, he's going off on me and uh, wasn't going to pay any more money. And I said, well, I'm sorry, i got to have 66000 and I'll let John go find something else. You know, I'm just trying to be a peacemaker here, and, but i got to make some money. He wouldn't have anything to do with it. So, you know, I calmed him down. I mean, I talked to this guy forever, it seemed like. Uh, everybody around me. They couldn't believe this asshole. And anyway, so we closed the deal. He left. He went away. (laughs) Marvin, you said it so well. So as you heard from Marvin, he's tried to find out before the auction if the original owner was interested in the property and Cody Dochev was the previous owner. Now, the agents weren't too happy with Dochev as he'd gone bankrupt and this affected a lot of his creditors in town, and so the estate agents were happy for Cody not to get the property, and hopefully he would leave and set up somewhere else. Remember, Granby is a small town of only 966 people. Someone going bankrupt can affect a lot of people. Now Marvin's friend John ended up not wanting the property, and so Marvin ended up cleaning it up, and decided to open a muffler shop in late 1993. Bud Wilson, who was the superintendent of the water and sanitation, approached Marvin to see if he would hook up to the water and sewerage. I'll let Marvin tell you how that all worked out. In the summer of 92, after I bought it, a guy named Bud Wilson, who is the superintendent of the uh, water and sanitation district down there in Granby, came to me and said that they wanted me to hook on to the, be annexed into the water and sanitation district. So I said, great. I says, what, what do I have to do? I says, do I, is there, do I have to get an attorney involved or what? He said, no. He says he'd do all the paperwork. And there was some kind of fee, I think, that I had to pay, but I don't remember anymore, but... Anyway, I was supposed to go to a meeting in September, I believe it was, and uh, get annexed into the water and sand. 
And uh, so we did. I went to the meeting, and uh, <laughs> I uh, just expected it to go through. It was unbelievable what happened to that meeting. Um, the main topic of concern that they had with me being annexed into the district was that they didn't have a maintenance easement across the property that was just south of me. It was owned by Gus Harris. And uh, they had put in a water and sewer line years before, but it supposedly hadn't gotten this maintenance easement. And Gus Harris wanted to, wasn't going to give it to him or something. You know, I'm not really sure how that all worked, but this maintenance easement was a pretty big obstacle. And they basically told me, the board did, in the fall of 92, that I would never have water and sewer there until I got this maintenance easement from this Gus Harris guy. Well, I was a little upset because, you know, he was a super, Bud was a superintendent, and this was supposed to, I thought this was a done deal. So, you know, I left the meeting, and I didn't, didn't need to listen any more of their crap. They wasted a lot of my time. So, this issue will cause major problems down the track. Marvin would approach Gus about buying the land required for the maintenance easement and Gus told him $17,500. About a year went by and Marvin approached Gus to see if the $17,500 was still on offer but Gus then told him $20,000. Now Marvin was wanting to get the contract sorted out to buy the property but Gus just wouldn't do anything about it and Marvin didn't want to push things either, as he was new in the community and wanted to fit in. Gus would end up selling it to Cody Dochev in 1996. Now, I don't want to bog down into too much detail about this, but as you can see, there are people in town that are starting to be awkward towards Marvin. Not everyone, but Granby had a small-town mentality And sorry to those who live in a small town, but you can make friends and enemies very quickly. Gus Harris and Cody Dochev were the first two to make things awkward for Marvin. Anyway, back to 1994. Marvin decides to build a shed on the land and open up a boat storage facility. He designs a building consisting of three 2,000 square foot units with bay doors that he could rent out as boat storage and it could be a good little investment for the future, something he could use in his retirement. He could subdivide the property and sell off the muffler shop if he wanted to. Once it was built, Marvin advertised his boat storage and within a year it was full, so it was a good little business. Now Marvin knew Cody Dochev wanted to buy Marvin's property and so Marvin in 1997 got an appraisal done. The property value came to $270,000. He offered it to Cody for $250,000 saying he was happy to give up his business and just go away. The offer was less than the appraisal but Cody wouldn't come back with a counteroffer. This would happen several times. In 1998 and 1999, Cody gets a contract to buy the property west of Marvin with the plan to build a concrete factory. 
Now, Marvin didn't want a dirty, dusty and noisy concrete factory next to his business and tries without success to buy the property from under Cody. Next thing Marvin sees is the concrete factory foundations going up and a notice that the property was going to be rezoned. Now, Cody wasn't allowed to start building under the existing zoning, and it hadn't yet been rezoned. Enter the lawyer, Stan Dietz. Well, I think his name was Stan. I couldn't confirm this 100%, but let's go on. I'll let Marvin describe Dietz. Now, the audio here is a little bit dodgy, but here it is. This guy is uh cowardly thief, man. He is a he is a man of the system, and he I mean he melts me like I've never been milked before. I tell you. So what Marvin said there, if you didn't get it, was this guy is a cowardly thief. He was a man of the system. He milked me like I've never been milked before. I can tell you that. Over the next couple of years, Dietz would assure Marvin that the concrete building could not be built and that City Hall could not approve it. Dietz decides that City Hall are doing everything wrong and decides that the best course of action is to go to court. Now while this goes on, City Hall fines Marvin for a junk violation on his property and the newspaper reports it. The newspaper has a photo of Marvin's property with a picture of Cody's foundations for his new concrete factory and it mentioned it in the photo's caption that the new concrete factory can be seen in the background. Now this has yet to be approved, but even the newspaper knows it will be built. As Marvin said, how can you have a foundation for a proposed concrete factory? It shouldn't be there yet. This is the first thing to piss off Marvin about the newspaper. The other thing would be a debate that would happen over a proposed casino in the area that Marvin thought would be a good thing and the editor of the paper was against. Let's hear from Marvin what he thinks of Patrick Breyer, the newspaper guy, and of the community in Granby as well. Anyway, we got this lawsuit going on, and this newspaper guy, Patrick Breyer, this guy is the this guy is the scum of the earth, also. Which is most most some of these people up here are for different reasons. But this guy hated me because when I first came up here in '91, uh, the gambling issue was getting started up here, and I'm just sitting around my condo uh, reading this newspaper, and this guy is just blasting. I mean, he's just uh, belittling him and slandering him as far as I was concerned, just making the pro gamblers look like fools. And I thought, well, what's wrong with these people? they got no economy up here. They're, here's here's an, it, something that's happened down there in, in uh, Blackhawk and uh, over at Cripple Creek, and it's done good economic things for those communities. Why is he so against this? I never could understand this. So I finally, after he blasted some people that I knew here in town, I wrote him a letter. And, uh, you know, told them, hey, this is America, you know, leave these people alone, you know, this, uh, this needs, this is, you don't have to be uh, making them look like some kind of fools, you know, was the whole gist of my letter. Anyway, you know, he just didn't know who Marv Hemar was, but he definitely hated me because I 
you know, said some things in the paper that were right on the button. I mean, I had an attorney for a neighbor at the time. Uh, his name was uh, Sommermeyer, Mayo, uh, Butch Sommermeyer. Told him his first name was Mayo. He's out of Fort Collins, I believe. But they had the house down below me here, and he said, Marvin, he says, what you're saying in the newspaper is exactly right. You know, he says, I'm all behind you. And it, it was it was encouraging, you know. Well, you know, this is small-town politics, and what do I know about small-town politics other than they're usually not good? And uh, I just figured, well, I'm kind of immune to a lot of this, and this was back in 92 yet, and uh, didn't realize how much it was going to affect uh, what I was doing. This newspaper guy, Patrick Brower, had told me after I started the muffle shops on a couple of different occasions, because I called him, and uh, I was advertising with him and so forth. He said that he was going to come down and we'd do an article on my little business. Well, he never did do it. You know, he was doing everything he could to keep me from getting any additional uh, publicity. It's one of those, it's, it's a kind of a community that in order for you to get ahead, you have to keep the neighbor down. You've got to keep, you've you got to be bad-mouthing everybody. It's not you know, build yourself up on your own merits. It's tear the other guy down, however you can do it, legally, of course. <laughs> so, add editor Patrick Breyer to Marvin's list of assholes. Now, getting back to the lawsuit over the concrete factory, the judge that is running the case happens to have a property near where Cody Doches has another property. And if Cody is denied the building approval, he might build it near his place, so the court case fails. Small town mafia mentality. So you can see, there's a lot of pushing going on towards Marvin. He's getting the Cambo rage. Now, I have more from Marvin. It's a long bit, it's about 30 minutes. But it is very interesting. Marv gets very philosophical and talks about how God has sent him for the task he's about to undertake. Marvin also gets the Cambo rage. This is where he hints as to what is going to happen. So please be patient. It is worth it. So basically, had they not meddled in my business, this would have turned out, this whole thing would have turned out completely different. If they would have just left me alone, let me get my, get on the water and sand, um, you know, build the building, put the tenants in there, you know, I could have had that rented out, I could have rented out the muffler shop, I could have sold the muffler shop, I could have subdivided that, could have done a lot of things. But, basically, what all this is going to prove when it's all over with, if it's ever all over with, which I doubt, it's going to prove, I hope it's going to prove to people that meddling in your neighbor's business is destructive for the most part. It's going to come back to haunt you. Or it can, I should say. It can come back to haunt you. And it can come back to haunt you in spades. And the only person you have to blame is yourself. And that's one thing I found up here. You know, they've blame the FDIC for so many of their problems. So many people up here are blamers. They are not responsible. They are not accountable. And, and, 
And, and that's the only way they can survive. And that's bad because that is just continually transferred generation after generation. The way the city operates, you know, it's just nothing ever gets better unless something drastic happens. And basically that's what's going to happen. So anyway, the other thing I was wanted to say was that I found out this even after, right right around, I suppose, in 2000 sometime. Um, this was after I'd found out what the, that the uh, sanitation uh, scam had been when they hid that, hid me, hid from me my ability to get on or kept, for, kept it from me. I also found out in about the year 2000 that in the fall, of 1991, before I ever even came to Grand County, that this plan to put this concrete plant was already going into place. And I didn't know about this until 2000. But in 1991, in the fall, Gus Harris and Cody Docheff and the powers that be, the Thompsons, the Thompsons' motivation was to get rid of Cody because he was such a just a pig, and, and such a little man complex. Ah, this guy was, I mean, he's Mr. Napoleon all the way in the worst way. The guy just couldn't deal with the fact that he was little. And uh, it, it definitely depraved the man. I mean, the guy is is really psychological. He needs some psychological help. But anyway, uh, they had gone to the town and rezoned Gus Harris's Two, two acres, which is directly south of my muffler shop. They did this under protest, which is in the minutes, um, from the bro owner of the Broken Arrow Motel, which was straight south of where the project was, was where, where the rezoning was. And, you know, I don't know if he didn't know it, or, you know, if, if they were counting on the public to be stupid, or if they were counting on the fact that nobody had any money that they'd be able to protest this in court, but the town went and spot-zoned the two acres directly south of me, which was illegal in Colorado. They had changed the HGB zoning on that two acres to industrial. And because no one protested it within 30 days, it became law that they could do that. And therein lies a big problem. When I came along and, you know, inadvertently bought this two acres, their plans were that Cody was going to buy this two acres and he'd go to the town and convert it to industrial because now it adjoined industrial property that they had approved already. So now it was no longer spot zoning, but, you know, approving it next to industrial zoning and would be, they, 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 had, they, they were going to get away with it. And they were going to be able to put this concrete plant right there next to all those houses downwind of the town so that the town would end up getting all this dust again and... Uh, you know, that they had had the concrete on the north side of the uh, County Road 612, and the neighbors, I mean, they just hated it up there. But now they were going to just do it all over again. And the main reason was Cody's motivation uh, for doing it in 91 was because of water, I believe. His main reason in doing it in 2000, or 99, or whenever it was, was to get back at Mark. It wasn't water anymore. 
He didn't get the message. And my message, again, I say is, you know, God was telling those people. I didn't know these people. Out of the blue, here I am buying this property with no malice towards anyone. Why didn't they get the message that they should not have put the concrete plant in town ever? Very subtle. This is just normal competition. You go to an auction and somebody outbids you. He would have been mad at anybody. Cody would have been mad at anybody who would have bought the property. Anybody. Uh, but, but you got to go there with enough money. Otherwise, you're the problem. It's your fault that this happened, not mine. You know, you can blame me all you want. You can blame the FDIC. That isn't the problem. You have got to learn to get over it and move on. But no, you sat there and plotted with the Thompsons to keep me down, to not allow me onto the water and sewer district, to not sell me that property, to sell it to Cody, to, to do this stuff and, and, and to get even with me. You developed malice towards me. I never had any malice towards you. Like I said, I tried to sell Cody the property the day I bought it in the spring of 92. I tried to sell it to him in 97 for $250,000. In 99, I had another estimate uh, appraisal done. Tried to sell it to him then for the appraisal price of three hundred ninety-five thousand. Wilson endowment or Wilson did this again, this reappraisal. He still would not come to me with a counter offer. How many times do you have to try to deal with a man? I mean, we had talked about this. Not these were three formal uh, times, as far as I'm concerned. You know, there were many other times when he had, you know. We had a chance to, to discuss it. You know, come on, Cody, buy the property. We didn't discuss any price or anything. But, you know, come on, Cody, be reasonable. But that's what you cannot do with people in the mountains, especially in Gradby. Uh, they do not know what reason is. Reason to them is doing it their way. And that's the only thing. Once they get that in their mind, that's the only thing that's reasonable. Well, I've developed that philosophy to a point maybe even to a higher point, because I am going to be unreasonable to the extent that although they probably cost me a half a million dollars or more, or more, I know it's been more, I could, I could make it easily 300000 That's based on my figures. My bookkeeper, who was Mark Krieg, felt that it cost me a half a million dollars. My accountant, Dave Patner, in Granby, both these people are in Granby, felt that it cost me a dollars for what those, the town had done to me, what the Thompsons had done to me, what the Dolchester had done to me, and what the sanitation district had done to me. That is a lot of money. And that is more money than any man should bear to lose or to not make, or however you want to look at it. Uh, I want to say right now, if I would have been married had a family, you know, things may have gone different, but God built me for this job. He rewarded me for 45, 50 years with the lifestyle that I am so thankful for. And, and, and it's unfortunate, the poor people in Granby, so many of them were so jealous of my lifestyle that I could come and go as I pleased. Well, 
God blessed me in advance for the task that I am about to undertake. And you know, I, I, I've tossed this, I mean, I have fought this for years now. Here it is, 2004, uh, April of 2004. It was sometime in 2001, I believe. And I mean, I'm, I'm six. 2000 or 2001. That the peace, I, I mean, I wept at times trying to understand why this was happening to me. And to do what I had to do to make these people listen, to learn, was just above me. And when I realized that one day when I was sitting in the hot tub, and I mean, I was, I was weeping. A peace came over me that has only come over me a few times before in my life where I knew that what I was doing was tough but it was the right thing and that it was above me. It wasn't me. I was doing this because God wanted me to do it. And I didn't understand it. I said, why did you ask me to do this? Is that why I've never been married? So I didn't have a family? Is that why I've always been successful? So that I would realize my reward before doing this task? I don't know. There are other things I can ask. Had I not carried my cross earlier, and now God had prepared me to carry this cross? I believe so. And I'm carrying the cross willingly now. At first, I fought it. But it has to be done. And the world will write stories about how wrong I am and everything. And without a doubt, I wish it could be done a different way. But there is no way to make this right. I spent one day here in the spring of 2003, the Thompson brothers were down below my house here in Grand Lake digging a foundation for a house. One day, I had some happening out the driveway, and Ron, I mean, Larry Thompson was standing out by his truck by himself, so I drove up to him and had a few words with him. Basically, what I told him was that, you know, Larry, uh, I actually called him Ron first. He says, Ron's dead. And I says, I'm sorry, Larry. And I says, but listen, maybe it's good that Ron's dead. Because, you know, no, no, it isn't, he said. And I says, well, I says, you know, about in 1992, your family made some decisions that financially affected my life for the rest of my life. And I can't afford it. And it cost me at least a minimum of $300,000. And I says, you need to pay me. And he says, what are you talking about? I basically told him, I said, don't play ignorant with me. And he shut right up. He says, you know what I'm talking about. I says, you made, that, your family made those decisions, and I'm referring to the ones of, that, where they kept me off, where Ron Thompson kept me off the sanitation uh, district. Uh, I said, you know about that? And I says, you owe me. And I says, I want $300,000 from you. And he says, it'll never happen. And I says, well, I says, I guarantee you, Larry, I'm going to collect. I says, it's a duty I have. I says, I basically can't call myself a man if I don't make this right. And I says, Ron died. And I think of all the money that he got, or that you, you inherited, because he died, 
from your father's estate that you had all inherited. I think that you ought to probably pay me with that. And he says, he says, not going to happen. And I says, well, I am going to collect. And I drove away. I got about four or five truck lengths away. And he basically confirmed in my mind right there that he knew what I was talking about. And he knew what had been done. Because he had one thing to say. He screamed it at me as I'm about five truck lengths away. He screamed, you can suck my dick. And I stopped the truck and I laughed out loud and I told him, I said, that will never happen. Well, when someone is that frustrated that they've got to say something like that, you know, they know. You could tell it in the tone of his voice. You could tell it by what he said. You could tell it by the way he acted. He's a cowardly bastard. He's a Catholic. And I think they are some of the biggest cowards I have ever met. I've known it for years. They have a different idea. They read from a different Bible. And they believe, I, I truly believe that they believe the only way that they can stay on top and give the Pope his money and all this stuff is to keep their neighbor down. There is no building to the Catholics, to their neighbor. They, they don't believe in encouraging their neighbor. And that's sad. That's so wrong. I never ran into anyone other than in my small town when I was a kid where everybody's always backstabbing you in a small community. But I lived in Denver. I had shop in Commerce City, one in Aurora, one in Inglewood, one in Lakewood. I had one shop in Boulder. I never felt that someone was, you know, intentionally working against me. You know, you got employees who are lazy when you're not watching them. They're, they're just screwing off. But, you know, that's employees. I never had anybody sit there and plan to cut me out of a, an opportunity to, to make money like, like the Thompsons did when they denied me access to the West Sanitation District. Had they not done that, I can assure you, the outcome, the concrete plant, the whole thing would have been completely different. I'm not saying I'd have been that much happier, but I would have never found out that they tried to fuck me. They would have, if they would have let me alone, I wouldn't have had this, this righteous anger that I have towards the Thompsons, their hierarchy, their attitude that they have left in that community for so many years that has spread and, and like a cancer through that community and, and so many people think like they do. Screw your neighbor. If they had stayed out of my business, the outcome, when they, when they started that concrete plant, look at the, what would have been there. I would have had a building built in 93 that would have had renters in it for seven years, from 93 until 99, 2000. Till today, maybe. You know, maybe the renters would have all moved out because of the dust. I would have had, if that would have been their feeling, they would have been on my side. We would have protested harder. Maybe the town council would have listened. But because the town council had gone to the effort in 91 to rezone that property, and I had screwed up the town's plans, the town had a hard-on for Marv Hemeyer. They didn't stop and think. Marv didn't have any malice towards us. This is a sign to not do this. No, they kept it in their hardened hearts.
and said, we'll get him. And they started getting me in 1992 when they kept me off the sanitation district. They started getting me when Gus Harris would not sell the property to me. They got me when they, Gus Harris sold the property to Cody Docheff. They got me when they issued the, the building permit to Cody Docheff for the concrete plant and denied that it was for the concrete plant. Although everybody knows it was because it is the concrete plant today. Look at the November, the, the uh, September 7th, 2000 issue of the Sky High News where that concrete foundation was. That's their building. Are we all stupid? Come on. They knew. And when I would ask them these questions, you, which you won't find in the minutes, they would just shut right up. They'd stonewall you. They didn't have an answer. Neither did I. I mean, I have an answer because I was giving them the answer. And they, I, 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 I shoot the truth in their face and they couldn't deal with it. And, and I'm sorry. They're going to have to deal with it. I guarantee you, I am going to make them deal with it. It is my duty. God has asked me to do this. You know, you can call it revenge. I don't know. I don't doubt that there is. I stop and think. We as human beings, we can put up with doing without uh, unbelievably too much. And I've heard that in, from motivational speakers. I've read it in books. Uh, seen it in seminars where people would talk about that. It's amazing how much we are willing to do without. You know, I sold the property for $400,000. I mean, that, I had to pay taxes on it, which I did. Uh, but I, I stuck, you know, $360,000 in my pocket. You know? Uh, I didn't stick it in my pocket. I gave it away. You know, it's gone. Because now money means nothing to me. I've given my house away. I do not need this cabin here in Grand Lake. I've given my snowmobiles. I've given those away this year. Everything is gone. What I own is just going to be a pittance compared to what I'm going to take. But hopefully the community will learn something from this and become wiser. And instead of hating their neighbor and keeping your neighbor down, they will love your neighbor. You know, there may not be a lot of love here because you can look at it and say it's coming from me. I've developed malice towards these people. I couldn't live with myself the rest of my life if I didn't have a plan to make this right. Um, I feel pretty worthless. And I know I probably shouldn't, but to know that for 10 years the people in the town of Granby did not want me there, and the fact that I was making good money by the 99 within, you know, eight, seven years after I, six years after I started that business, that I was making a pretty good income. I'm sure it made them very jealous. I'm sure everything about me made them jealous. I'm sorry that they felt that way. That is a bad thing, way to feel. You know, I wasn't trying to keep up with the Joneses, I know. It may be, I, I say that, maybe that's not true. I was always trying to be the Joneses. Do it my way. Look at me. See what I do. 
This is what I've done. You all have the opportunity to do what I've done. I haven't done much. I mean, I graduated from high school to 28th of my class of 29. It's no big deal. I wasn't intelligent. I wasn't smart. I wasn't stupid. But I wasn't educated. I didn't have the knack to sit in the classroom and, and be a bookworm. I don't know why. I, 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 was, I may have. I don't know why. But God built me maybe clear back in the fourth grade when I broke my arm. Because that's when my, my, my uh, grade started falling off. I don't know. He had this plan clear back then. Maybe, if you believe in predestination, which I do, maybe it was planned before I was born. I don't know. I don't understand predestination that much, but I do believe in it. So here we are, and I am at peace with what I am about to do. I, I, I have to be. And uh, although I've wrestled with it for years, and, you know, God gave me this last winter off again because he knew that I wasn't strong, and... Uh, <laughs> That was, that was so unique that this didn't get done last year. Uh, how the sale of the business kind of interrupted my progress on my, uh, um, my Marv Komatsu, what, we, what did I call it? I got a name for it. Oh, my MK tank. That, uh, that I didn't get the old MK tank done last fall is, is amazing because it should have happened. But, you know, God has his timing, his plans made out, and, uh, and they're, they're, they're to be. And it looks like it's going to be. Because the one thing that I have wanted to do is get caught. Uh, I had hoped that somebody would catch me and that this whole thing would stop. And that would be a good sign for me not to do it. I hoped, I haven't played the lottery a lot, but I hoped that I would win the lottery. And I could forget this whole thing. I could move on because then I would have my $300,000. And I would have my life back. And I could, I could live the way I want to live. But, you know, I, I, I had that money. This, this cabin was bought and paid for free. I didn't have a rental payment. People will say that, why did he do that? He had such a good life. He had a better life than me anyway. Well, I, I can understand that to a point. It's not what I deserve. You meddled in my business and took what I deserved away. You took advantage of my good nature. Well, I think there's something you should learn here. For as good as a man can be, also can he be as bad. And another thing you should learn is that when you visit evil upon someone, be assured it will revisit you. And that is what is happening. It is a good thing. Because I think the community of Grandview will be stronger. I think that they will understand after years, if they ever hear this tape, if they ever hear the truth, if they're ever willing to listen. That was one thing that the council would not do, ever. They, wouldn't, they were not, because they knew that they were going to have this concrete plant. Everything that I or the 50 or 80 people that were at those meetings initially they would fall on deaf ears because I was the only one, the one person, I should say, that was going to be adver adversely affected so negatively by the impact of this concrete plant. I stood there and fought till the end. 
I spent the money. I let that attorney Dietza milk me because I was fearful. I was weak. Understood. Understood. I spent the money. I fought the good fight. To come to realize that I had to do what I have to do now. It's a sad, sad way to do it. But it's a cross that I'm going to carry. And I'm carrying it in God's name, I believe. I truly believe this. I would have been caught. Something would have happened. I mean, there's still some time left. It still may not happen. It could be that the day it does start, the machine quits when I, before I even get out of the building. It may quit right after I get out of the building. Uh, it may quit halfway through what I want to do. You know? And that's where it's supposed to stop. Because God will have stopped it. I believe that that machine, other than sometimes that it won't go in gear, I haven't figured that out yet, but I, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, that's only happened a couple of times, and then all of a sudden by itself it went into gear. So I don't know what the problem is there, but that could be a very critical problem that stops me. Um, there's, there's just so many things I've hoped for that I didn't and wouldn't have to do this, but I'm, I'm here today, the 13th of April, 2004, and we're moving on, and I'm trying to make this tape and be done with it. Um, anyway, I need to, I need to digress here a little bit. The town, you know, the people that were on the boards, uh, the Peterson lady, you know, she'd been on that board for so long. She knew the history, what the town wanted. She knew the history of the FDIC. They had the, so many people on that board, the, uh, the fat lady, uh, that owned the flower shop or whatever she owned. Um, I can't even remember her name. Um, Casey at Gambles. Uh, so many of those people knew, had these sentiments towards the FDIC, which had been permeating the community since the FDIC did what they did. And, and here I am, a beneficiary of the FDIC, and they were definitely out to, to get their their feelings, uh, um, I guess, uh, what's the word, appeased, you know, <laughs> which, which is something else, you know, I appeased, I tried to miss, wrongly, for years, I tried to appease Cody Dochev's misguided anger, I tried to talk to him, I tried to be friendly towards him, talked to his kid, uh, buy, I bought every bit of concrete, which turned out to be shit, he, he ripped me off on that concrete so bad, but, you know, I tried to buy all my concrete from the guy, and, you know, they get, you know, I, I had no malice towards this man, or any person in Granby, and yet, they had to do this to me, and for what was their guys, the sales tax. The increased amount of sales tax revenue. And I tried to explain to them, you don't have that much sales tax here for the detriment that you're causing to the community. All of the products are delivered, most of the products are delivered out in the county. 
I says, the few, you're going to sell infiltrators right here in town. People are going to come up and pick up some manholes. Might even pick up a septic system once in a while. Who knows? They're going to pick up, what? Maybe 5% of the business? Okay. What is that for what you're causing the, 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 the downgrading of the community, of the motels? Now we got a motel with concrete plant on one side. Before we had it with just the, the railroad tracks. Waking everybody up at night, going back and forth. Okay. You know, sometimes you're going to get a motel like this. Now you got one with a fucking concrete plant with absolutely no hours of operation restrictions, you know, other than what the federal government, you know, guidelines are, are imposed, you know, which is everybody. But those concrete plants are not in the center of town. They're out in the country for the most part. Only their malice, their resentment, towards the outsiders there was their motive for making sure that that concrete got in town and and it's just uncanny the the after it got started how I tried to stop it how every time I did I failed it told told me one thing that God wanted these people to learn and he knew that I eventually would get to the point where I wouldn't put up with what they were taking away from me for what they had denied me. God knew Marv Hemeyer very well. He put me up here. He put me up here. Initially, I, I expect to, uh, to, to stop this whole process, which it did. It did for 10 years. And that was God's will. But it was not God's will that they do what they did to me. That was man's will. That was their will. And, uh, you know, it's it's effective. Um, don't agree with it. I could never agree with it. When man's will is to uh, harm his neighbor and uh, keep him from prospering, uh, it's wrong. And that's basically, that's all they did the, the many, many years that I was there. So, you know, we're coming up on that day when I'm going to do what I have to do. And uh, I, we'll, we'll see what's what happens. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, it's, God's will. It's going to be, God's will be done. It's not mine. So, we'll see once what happens. Um, that's, that's just the way it is. So, that was a long rant with a bit of Cambo rage. But you can see where he's coming from. Now, I've listened to the whole two and a half hour or so tape nearly a dozen times. The more you listen and read newspaper articles about the event I'm about to get into, the more you can see how a perfectly reasonable man can, and I'll quote Marvin, sometimes reasonable men must do unreasonable things. The Dochefs claim that every time they tried to buy the land off Marvin, he would raise the price. That's bullshit. And I do believe Marvin tried to sell it to Dochef on several occasions. So Marvin has this shit. And he realises that the Komatsu D355 bulldozer 
is just the right size to fit it in. He sees this as a sign from God that he didn't buy the other popular bulldozer on the market because that wouldn't fit. The Komatsu is also passed in at auction where he sold his car and a couple of snowmobiles. This was also a sign from God. Marvin starts looking back at his whole life and he comes to the conclusion that everything that has happened in his life up until this point was predetermined. He had the burden of carrying the cross to do what God had chosen him to do and he believes that only divine intervention will stop him from carrying out this task. Now we're getting to what Marvin says God has chosen him to do. Now at this point, he has basically sold up everything. Most people in town think he's moved away. The fact is, he's moved into his shed with the bulldozer and he's planning his revenge upon the town of Granby. Over months, Marvin will begin to build the Komatsu bulldozer into what he calls MK Tank, the Marv Komatsu Tank. Marvin will cover the cabin, engine and parts of the tracks in a homemade armour plating. It will consist of concrete sandwiched between sheets of tool steel in places more than a foot or 30 centimetres thick and he uses Dodi Kochev's concrete. He placed several video cameras linked to monitors so he could see where he was going. The cameras were protected by 3-inch or 75mm thick bulletproof plastic. He even had compressed air nozzles to blow dust away from the cameras. He made three gun ports fitted for a 50 caliber rifle, a 308 semi-automatic rifle and a .22 LR rifle, all fitted with a half-inch thick or one3 centimeter steel plate. Inside, he had fans and an air conditioner to keep him comfortable. So, if you've seen photos of the modified bulldozer, you will see the huge armour-plated shroud. Now, it's said that Marvin used a lift to lift the armour-plated section down onto the bulldozer once he was inside. So, there was no real way of getting in or out without lifting that whole section back off. Alright, so now you know most of Marvin's story, now let's get to that fateful day, the afternoon of June the 4th, 2004. Marvin gets into his MK tank, or as the press will dub it, his killdozer. He starts it up, and as God has directed him, he revved it up, and blasted through the front of the shed he'd been living and working in. He didn't open the bay door, he just blasted straight through the front. First port of call was Cody Dochev's concrete factory next door. Here, he aimed straight for the concrete forming building at Mountain Park Concrete, smashing a huge hole in the side of the building, causing the side to collapse and the roof to cave in. He then turned towards the concrete batch plant itself, again destroying the building by ramming the bulldozer into it. He has now totally destroyed Cody Dochev's concrete plant. 
Apparently, Marvin took a few pot shots at Cody, but failed to hit him. At this stage, police were on the scene, powerless to do anything to stop the Marvin rage and his killdozer. Their gunfire did nothing, and even one cop got on top and put a flashbang grenade down inside the exhaust, but that was useless. It did no damage at all. Next port of call was the Mountain Park's electric co-op building down the road. He smashed into the side of that, destroying several garages and completely wrecking the front reception office and reception area. He then turned around, crushing cars as he made his way towards Maple Street Builders, where he picked up a truck with the front of the bulldozer and used it to smash through the front of the building. At this stage, the authorities called the National Guard to see if they could dispatch an Apache helicopter with Hellfire missiles to try and stop Crazy Marv. They denied doing this, but there is evidence they considered it. Next on Marvin's list was the Granby Town Hall, which he made sure he totally destroyed, and this also destroyed the public library, which was on the same site. Now, some say there were kiddies in the building only minutes before, but they'd been evacuated much sooner than that. You see, a lot of the media reports try to make out Marvin didn't care if he killed innocent bystanders, but the facts tell a different story. He did go out of his way to get his revenge the safest way possible. If by safe, you mean driving an armoured plate bulldozer around town taking out his enemy's buildings. Okay, on to the Liberty Bank, where he smashed into the side of the newly built building, leaving a gaping hole in the side. As he went anything in the way, including traffic lights, trees, police cars, or any car for that matter, was smashed aside. Next target was the newspaper officers. Marvin slammed the bulldozer into sky-high news building, completely demolishing the front of the building. He then went about destroying the rest of the news office before turning his attention to several of the Thompsons' properties. First, he damaged the Thompson & Sons Excavating Company garage, taking out some trailers in the process. He almost totally destroyed the house of the former and at the time recently deceased mayor's house, which his 96-year-old widow, Thelma Thompson, was still living in. But she was okay. She ran out the back. He then, well, used her walker to get out the back, being 96 years old. Anyway, he then directed his attack on the Excel Energy Building, which was also owned by the Thompsons. He destroyed trucks and demolished the building. Then Clark Branstetter tried in vain to stop him by driving a road scraper into the bulldozer's path. This had no effect on Mad Marvin and his killdozer. Marvin fired at and took out several electrical transformers and also fired at propane tanks trying to get them to explode. But they didn't. At this stage... All those who thought Marvin had left town got a rude awakening as to where he was now. So he turned back into town. The next stop was copycat printing, where he damaged the front of the building. 
but this is thought to have been a mistake as he didn't have any ill feelings towards the business. But next door was the Gambles building, where he ran right up one side of the building, cutting through it like a knife through hot barney butter. He kept going through to the warehouse section at the back of the building. At this stage, there was water and steam spewing out of the bulldozer, and then the right-hand side tracks fell through the basement floor of the building, trapping it. The bulldozer was fucked. Police surrounded it, but couldn't find a way in. Soon, they would hear one gunshot. It took hours for them to get inside the killdozer, and there they found the body of Marvin Hemeyer, dead from a self-inflicted pistol shot to the head. Around him, there was over $7 million damage, several destroyed buildings, totaled cars, and all sort of other carnage. The tapes that you heard part of tonight would be handed into the FBI by Marvin's brother and eventually be released to the public. Marvin became a hero to many who were against the establishment, although he would be seen by almost as many as a crazy bastard hell-bent on destroying other people's property because he didn't get his own way. As I said before, I've listened and re-listened to Marvin's tapes nearly a dozen times. I see a totally reasonable man that was just time and time again roadblocked by a sick and twisted, almost incestuous bunch of assholes that thought they had supreme power in this tiny little town. Several times he tried to sell up to little Cody Dochev, but he wouldn't buy. He and his cohorts wanted to squeeze Marvin out, destroy his soul, rather than just pay him out and let him move on. Well, again, as Marvin said, sometimes reasonable men have to do unreasonable things. So, Islanders, what do you think? Madman or just a normal guy pushed to the limit? Now, I will upload the full version of Marvin's tapes if you want to hear his complete story. I'll do that in a few days. It goes for a couple of hours or so, and it really is worth having a listen to. So, that's the end of the show. Now, I hope you enjoyed it. Now, firstly, I must apologise for missing a week last week, but as you may well know, I was on holiday visiting the lovely Katie. And this is a one-man show. I did need to direct my attention towards said lovely Katie. Actually, it felt funny skipping an episode, but sometimes life does get in the way. I can't imagine if I did this as a full-time job, what you'd be getting. It would be fantastic, but we'll have to see what I can do. Next, we do a shout-out for the patrons of the island. Hi to Aaron M, Sarah J, Margaret Salazar, and a big shout-out to Supreme Goddess Christy Booth. Thank you so much for your support, and thanks to all the existing and past patrons for your support. It's very much appreciated. As you know, this is a commercial-free podcast, which I know you all love, and the show is totally listener-supported. If you want to become a patron of the island, just go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island where for as little as a dollar a month you can become a patron 
all funds go directly back to the island. So far, listeners have funded a new PC, new headphones, all the hosting costs, new mics for when I go away on holidays, and help with the upfront costs of some of the merch. Cheers and everyone grab a beer. You can also do a one-off payment via PayPal if you don't like Patreon. And you can do that by typing paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland and you can buy me a beer. If you want stickers, koozies, pins or keyrings, you need to email me directly and my email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. I can price it up for you according to where you live. I have $20, $25 loot packs available. That has like keychain, lapel pin, koozie and stickers. And of course, that also includes postage. You can buy keychains, pins and koozies by themselves if you like. Just email me, I'll give you a price. All other merch, such as t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage and all that stuff's via the shop at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Now it's all confusing, so there's links to everything at the website truecrimeisland.com. Again, you don't have to spend money to support the show. You can rate, review and share the love. The more people who know about the show, the better. If people don't know what a podcast is, then show them the way. Join the Facebook group, just search for True Crime Island, join the closed group and get in on the chat. Our lovely Sanga and Jason are moderators and they will let you in. Don't forget to check out Twitter and Instagram. The island handle is at True Crime Island. You can join in the chat and there's so many other podcasts you'll find on there there as well. Hi to all the followers. Okay, two promos tonight. First up is Whining About Crime with Bonnie. Do yourself a favour and check it out. Also, a new one from Mike Morford of Criminology fame called Murder in My Family. Now, this will be uh, released July 7, and if it's anything like Mike's other programs, uh, projects, it's set to be a sure sub. Well, that's about all for tonight, and lots of love to Maggie James. So, this has been Cambo, and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say... Don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. I'm Bonnie Lee of Whining About Crime, a story-driven true crime podcast created here in Canada. I try to examine the elements of a crime and how the motives, the victims, and sometimes even the accused stories can teach us something about ourselves and the people we encounter. Can we learn something that can be applied to our own lives? Well, there's only one way to know. You'll know that you found me when you hear me say, please, don't leave me. Murder. The unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another. A short, simple definition of a word that we're all familiar with. 
for most of us, murder is just that, a word or a definition that has no impact on our lives. But to some people, murder is much more than that. It's real. It's personal because they've lost a loved one to murder. And I want to share their stories with you. My name is Mike Morford and some of you may know me as co-host of the true crime podcast, Criminology. I'd like to invite you to check out my new podcast, The Murder in My Family. In each episode, I'll recount a single murder case and talk one-on-one with the family members of these victims to see how these tragic crimes changed their lives and where their search for justice has taken them since. Starting in July of 2018, you can find and subscribe to The Murder in My Family on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you'll join me for The Murder in My Family.